Chester. Ken loves talking about cars and automotive trends. And here he is, the automotive host with the most, Ken Chester. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. This is America's premier mobility news and technology talk show, Roadworthy Drive. Welcome to another hour. I'm your host, Ken Chester. So glad you're able to join us. As always, we got a full docket to get to along with some important information I'll be sharing during our From the Parts Bin segment. But first, to add your voice to the conversation at hand, call or text me on the Roadworthy Drive line, that number, 872-222-9793. For those of you who would rather communicate via email, my address is ken at roadworthydrive.net. You can use either one at any time. Ask a question, suggest a topic. Share your opinion. Yep, it's all good. Speaking of all good, let me introduce the other members of the in-studio Roadworthy Drive crew. Leading off, the adult in the room, the favorite of the suits, the man with the hands on the controls, show executive producer Jack DeLeon. Over at Mike 2 is the sweet and sour, sometimes caffeinated, always opinionated, lady with the twinkle in her eyes, Sasha Little. Howdy, my peoples. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sweet and sour? Yes. A- and sour? Occasionally. Uh, really? Sasha? Yes, sir. He is now forbidden to write the <laughs> open. <laughs> oh, and by the way, guys, uh. at the moment, the car hostage situation seems to be over. The car hostage situation? I yes. missed something. Yes, I got the car back. Oh, that hostage situation. Yes. Right. I, uh, got, I got the car back. That was, what, uh, day 27 or something? Uh, seemed like it, yes. <laughs> okay. And mm-hmm. so far, so good. Okay, so the good news is you got it back. And it's working. And it runs. The bad news is. That you got it back. <laughs> for, yes, I got it back. Oh, well. And the other one is for how long. Anyway, uh, Mr. Chester, what is going on in the parts bin this week? Um, little Tesla news. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, oh! the news is Elon Musk had to work on his birthday. It was a national crisis. Actually, no. But he did. But <laughs> oh, that's not what I we're tried. talking about here. Um, Tesla wants to build a factory in China with an annual production capacity of 500,000 vehicles. Didn't we already know this? Um, we did not know that it's actually a thing. They've actually signed paperwork, and they're in the process of setting it up. In Lingang, New City, China. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they're following Harley-Davidson and expanding outside the U.S. Yeah. Underscoring the urgency in which companies are moving to avoid damage from escalating trade disputes. Um, let me point this out. China is now the world's largest automotive market. Yep. If you are going to do business in that market, you want to be as competitive financially as possible. Any tariff that's going to add between 25 and 40% to the price of your already high-priced vehicle is going to price you out of the market. So the only way to get around it sometimes is to build in that country. Now, before people get all excited, we did that here in the United States almost 40 years ago. 
Yep. Yes, we uh, did. When our industry was flat on its back in the early 1980s, trying to overcome uh, the recession that was going on at the time, Congress threatened, I'm sorry, Japan with tariffs. Yep. Japan voluntarily, in order to avoid the tariffs, restricted. Well, no, before they even built here, they agreed to hold imports to 2.2 million vehicles. That led to them building factories in the infrastructure that they now have here in the United States, employing Americans and supply and other companies and um, supply chains here in this country supporting those factories. So this is not ever a good thing. And may I point out, Tesla up till now has never had a year where they built more than 100,000 cars. Something okay. you should know. So, well, but isn't that part of the growing pain? Yeah, but they're looking at leapfrogging in time. I mean, you're looking at a factor of four or five in like a year or two. Well, and it's the, not going to happen. And the, well, okay. The other question that I have is: at what point are the regulations in the United States either higher or lower than China's? Okay, are you because, saying because, regulations or tariffs? I'm saying regulations. Our cars have to meet a certain amount of regulations, correct? Mm-hmm. What are those regulations in China? Are they more or are they less? Less. Uh, uh, not always. Not always. Because right now, China is the number one producer of electric vehicles in the world. Yep. More than everybody else. Well, more than the U.S. and Europe combined. Right. Right okay. now. Okay. They realize that to compete on a global stage, you have... Different requirements in Europe. You have different requirements in the United States. Anything built there they're going to export will meet our requirements. Correct. So that's not the reason why they're there. A 40% tariff is the reason why they're there. I'm not, I'm not saying that that was the reason why they were yeah. there. What I was asking was if you're going to jump this, as you said, by a factor of four or five. In production. They're going to have to come up with something a whole lot better than what they've got now. In terms of? Being able to get four or 500,000 cars built in a yeah, year. Yeah, that's called infrastructure. And we'll see. I guess we'll just see. But that's where they're going, and it should be interesting to see if they meet it. Okay. So there's that. Um, this is a personal note to anybody who has just bought a brand new 2019 Subaru Accent. Ascent. That's a new large SUV. Right, okay. right. And actually... I'm talking to what could be as many as 293 of new owners. Okay. And it's actually, according to Subaru, probably just nine. But we'll see. Here's what happened. Um, In assembly of these vehicles, there was a programming error on one of the welding robots that Uh missed a key weld, a key spot weld on the B-pillar for 293 of these. Subaru, rather than try to fix it, is replacing those vehicles. Really? Yeah. Okay. Now, according to Subaru, um, that 293 is less than 1%, and from what they can tell, only nine were sold. The others were in dealer lots or in transit. A couple of things I want to point out here. The fact that we are to a point where an automaker can identify a defect down this low 290, they know exactly which 293 vehicles have this defect. Wow. Okay? That's crazy. They know that only nine of them were sold. 
they know um, what caused the problem, what date they were built, um, you know, and to be able to do this. This is how precise the auto industry has gotten. Right. I mean, you're talking about building hundreds of thousands of vehicles in the United States across all the automakers every day. But you can get down to this level of detail. Back in the day, they didn't. Oh, no. So here's the thing. If you think you've got one of those, dealers can identify the problem models by checking the vehicle identification number. You're not going to be able to tell by sight. Um, If you're in doubt, visit your local Subaru dealer. They should be able to type in the VIN and let you know. Chances are good if you have a new accent that yours is not. Because if it was only nine... Uh, you're one of nine people in the entire country. Wow. Uh, yeah. They'll know. No. They haven't contacted you already. When you talk about, are they just going to go straight replace it? Oh, yeah. So I'm not going to get dinged no. the, 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 the depreciation. Um, it's almost impossible since this vehicle is so new. If you've had it, you probably haven't even had it two months yet. Okay. That's true. So, okay. I mean, true. it's not like this was last year and you put... Five, ten, fifteen thousand miles on it. Right. You're lucky if you've got more than a thousand miles on it. I'll be very surprised. They're that new. So I just wanted to point it out. But it's also not the first time an automaker's done this. Back in the day when Saturns first came out, Mm -hmm. they inadvertently put acid in the antifreeze of eighteen hundred Saturns. Ooh. They bought all those cars back, all of them. They didn't even try to flush it. They just replaced the cars. So it's rare. But it happens. And I wanted, to, I wanted to bring this out, not so much for Subaru, but to give you an idea just how precise the auto industry has gotten at their ability to identify when there is a problem. So basically what you're saying is they're using blockchain for this. No. Okay. No. It's just the fact that in their production line and with the tools that they have for tracking vehicles that they're able to do this. Now – is every single part in that car cracked? Cracked. Tracked. Cracked. Yes. Not cracked. Cracked. Yes. Yes. Um, but, you know, wanted to make that point. So, yeah, uh, the more things change, the more they get the same. But, you know, technology marches on. From a corporate near-death experience almost three years ago to remaking itself as a leading electronic vehicle manufacturer, Volkswagen has a plan for you, and we explore that next. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. You are listening to Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Chrysler Plymouth cut this duster in half so I could show you how it's put together to last. But that's only half the story. Here's the other half, a special duster, a gold duster. Among other things, it's already equipped with white sidewalls and wheel covers. And when you buy one, you can get this vinyl roof and it won't cost you an extra dime. Talk to your Chrysler Plymouth dealer about it, will you? If you're just joining us, this is the home of real facts, real opinions, and real talk. Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. Volkswagen. Talk about a roller coaster ride. The automaker has turned what could have easily been 
a near-death sentence with regards to worldwide violation of vehicle emission standards with their diesel engine cars and SUVs into a 21st century example of how to tackle the future. Here in the United States, they've launched a full-size seven-passenger Atlas SUV. Folks love it. Mm -hmm. Possibly even now looking at the future, and we've seen some prototypes, uh, or at least pictures of prototypes. I haven't actually seen one of a Volkswagen-branded pickup truck to follow. And no, this is not like that little golf-based, uh, rabbit-based pickup car from back about 40 years ago that you might be thinking about. Mm -hmm. This is a big, robust, Atlas-sized-looking pickup truck. Yeah, I will tell you this. The Atlas looks really, really nice. Oh, yeah. See, I've got it. pictures of that thing. I've actually sat in one. I'm sure you have. Yeah. So they're on a roll. But even with all of that, um, as a result of their settlement with the U.S. government, Volkswagen is spending $2 billion. That's $2 billion with a B in the United States alone in coming years to build out an electric vehicle charging infrastructure across the United States. And then finally, if that's not enough, they're going to be launching a number of pure electric and hybrid electric vehicles starting next year. And all of that, all of that, just scratching the surface. You know, and I've got to love it. I, I really got to love their dedication um, to the electric vehicle. Because as you know, I am fully for the electric well, they, they, they had some help. It was called the U.S. Justice Department. Right, a right. nice, hard push. But, I mean, what better way to reinvent yourself than to get in line with the future mm -hmm. of mobility and automotive tech? Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Because speaking of the future. Right. Yeah, Volkswagen's got a plan. Now, I said yep. all of that. That's just scratching the surface. Right. Now, in the spirit of Pinky and the Brain. I love them. Yes. Um. Volkswagen's got a radical plan mm -hmm. to fix ride sharing and car ownership. <gasps> no. What are they going to do? Okay. First of all, where are they going to do it? Okay. Probably in Germany. No. Here? No. Oh. Take a guess. We already did. There was two. No, no I'll take one more guess. Okay. Africa? <laughs> she laughs. He's right. Are ding, you ding, 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 ding. Yeah. For what possible? Well, okay. Let me break this down Solar? for you. Hold on. Africa outpaced the rest of the world with mobile money services. Oh. Now the continent could do the same for ride sharing. Okay. Think about this for a minute. In Rwanda, for 12 million people, there are only 200,000 private cars. Oh. And guess where Volkswagen's building a new factory? Mm. Rwanda. Rwanda. Here's why. What they're looking at now, even though while buying a brand new car is out of pocket for most, what they're planning to do is build up to 5,000 Polos and Passats a year, Polos being their smaller car. Okay. M get this. Most of which will be dis destined for car sharing and ride hailing from the day they're built. What? Think of it as Zipcar and Uber, but on a potentially national scale with brand new cars. A Volkswagen calls this. Uh, integrated Mobility Solution, and here it is. The aim is simple, helping more people to get moving. Car ownership is low not just in Rwanda, but across Africa. Let me give you some statistics. Okay. On the African continent, 
There was only 35 cars per 1,000 people. That's back in 2014. That's according to U.S. government data. Okay. Compare that to 206 cars per 1,000 in Brazil, 347 per 1,000 in Eastern Europe, and hold on, people, 816 cars per 1,000 in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Did I mention 35 cars per 1,000 on the African continent? But here's the killer part. In Rwanda, even though car ownership is low, 75% of the residents own a smartphone. Okay. I'll let that sink in. Okay, but here's my question. Mm-hmm. Volkswagen, I'm assuming, is going to own these or some kind of company is going to own these. Are they going to be like Enterprise and drop them off to you? Ah, Remember it says, think of Zipcar and Uber, and they're going to have stations across the country where you can drop in and do just that. Okay. But here's the thing. They've managed. Theoretically, if this takes off, they've literally replaced vehicle ownership with smartphone. Yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. They've just replaced your car with mm-hmm. a smartphone. Yeah. The 95% of the time that shiny metal sitting in your driveway, not making you any money, depreciating and, and rusting slowly. Mm-hmm. They've leapfrogged that whole 100 years of process. The fact that now, and I say it, technology has just leapfrogged the car ownership experience. If this takes off, uh, we get to, this is another example, as mobility as a service. I don't own a car, don't have to. I just need use of it. And I'm paying for the use, just like a cell phone plan. Yes. Imagine that. If that works in Rwanda, you can, they could can roll it out around the world so people of low income who might have 10 or 15 bucks in their pocket can be mobile. Don't have to walk. Can you imagine the changes that could rot in a low-income country or low-income parts of countries? Quite a bit. I mean, that's a game changer, and that's a level field kind of thing. Well, but again, you're back to the same thing. Somebody's going to have to take that hit someplace. But you know what? It's called capitalism, my friend. Not a problem. Um, Car sharing is already popular across Africa. It's been around longer and more popular than Western countries, primarily because of distance, uh, low population densities, and no public transportation infrastructure. Ride hailing, however, is the new thing. Although less popular, Uber is already one of the main players. So this thing is already there. I mean, they've got other services, privately owned minibuses, bicycle and motor taxi, motorcycle taxis, and a taxi share system in various other countries across Africa. If this thing takes off, you're going to see how technology uh, has rendered large parts of what we call traditional transportation obsolete. And car ownership is on the block now. I, this could only go up. And they make it, I mean, it's a laboratory. It's, it's literally, forgive me, Sasha, a blank canvas. I really said that. <laughs> you really had to go there, didn't you? I did. And I was being good. I did. So far, we only know about what several of the domestic automakers are planning short term. We have seen the future, and that's next. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. This is Roadworthy Drive.
Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is America's premier automotive news and information talk show. This is the downhill side of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester, your ever-present host. Thank you for tuning in. For those of you who want, need, or just got to have more than your share of the road, be sure to check out the show website. That's roadworthydrive.com. Discover audio, watch video clips of our behind-the-scenes antics, and so much more. Those of you who hang out on social media, the website is where you find out where and what we're doing in the social media universe during the week between shows. Sasha is our resident social media diva, and she keeps things inspirational, light, and lively during the week with her fun, friendly, and insightful postings and more. And it was a really good week last week. Yeah. We did a concept week from Chevy, and we had a really, really nice... um, span of guesses and we had people like calling texting had a few really nice conversations on the line Mm -hmm. it was fun week Mm -hmm. i haven't decided if i'm going to continue doing the uh concepts or if i'm just going to go like what hey a little love for mopar a lot of love for mopar so we can do some mopar uh concept you know what why don't we do some dodge why don't we do some dodge concept well Well, but here's but here's against plymouth here's can we get some love for plymouth because they never gave me the Uh, viper excuse me that's not a plymouth no, no. What was the one that looked like a praying mantis? Oh, you're talking about the, uh, I can see it too. And right, I got the pictures. purple. Yeah, I Permit got pictures Prowler. of the Prowler. Prowler. That's what I love. That's it. Yes. Okay, can the executive producer talk now? <laughs> He's got his hand up. Why are, why are we doing concept cars for Chrysler and Dodge or Plymouth, which doesn't exist anymore, hey, when hey, they're hey, on their hating. way out? Why, why is he hating? I'm not hating. I speak in he reality. He to stab in the heart. Uh, oh, is that it? Oh, please get over <laughs> My yourself. God. Uh, there are some Mopar fans in the audience as well as in the studio, and we'd like to at least enjoy our moment before they go to the big uh, auto parts store in the sky or something. So just some thought. But anyway, folks. <laughs> and you- I think it's a nice representation of given the way technology is now. I love looking back and seeing this is what they thought of. This is things that they, and I didn't really go too far back, but I'm thinking with this one, I'm going to go further back because it's really interesting to see um, where they thought automotive technology is or Mm -hmm. was going to be. And then here we are. Yeah. I I still miss my in-car record player. I was going to post that. I seriously was. I'm Uh looking for that car Uh in your your record. 1960 Chrysler Imperial. Why did you just give away the answer? Because they now have to go look and see if they can find it, because you may right. find it up. By the way. Yes, yes, sir. I posted this on my Facebook page yesterday. It's a picture, folks, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to let Ken describe this. This was just hilarious. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay, somebody had it's a, a little... push me pull you Chevy truck. Yeah, somebody had a little bit too much time on our hands. Right. Uh, well, yeah. actually, this was sitting in a dealership somewhere in Arizona uh-huh. that they designed this to put out front to attract people. Yeah, because that thing's not drivable. Oh, it, it is. Not only is it drivable, it's listed. What? I mean, it's registered to drive. You drive this thing. How much they want for it? Uh, this guy said this guy's not selling it. 
Okay. This guy, this guy bought it. Uh-huh. And he went to go get a vanity plate put on it. <laughs> okay. And now you see me. And now the gal, and he, the, he showed the picture of this truck to a gal at DMB. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, What the? <laughs> now. Okay. Family show. Yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I stopped. Mm-hmm. But his license plate says WHT dash T-H-E. What the? <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, a truck for those days when you don't know whether you're coming or going. Exactly. Now, okay, folks, gotcha. what this truck is, is basically two cabs of a Chevy that they have put together. And it looks, looks like a 1970s. It's in the 70s. 70s. Yeah. It's in the 70s. And basically the hood of the one that actually is the back of the truck. Mm. Inside that compartment is the trunk. Okay. The cabs are all identical. The the and it's the front ends, guys, and it's just that made my day yesterday. Which means, yeah, he can't be drunk and try to even get into this truck because he'll get in the wrong. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> You're having a bad day. It is not the truck to do it. Well, right. actually, actually, what the guy says is that it just makes people's day to he, see this truck. I, I anyway, believe, we digress. We do, uh, but GM, good chance. GM looks to consolidate 26 platforms into four vehicle sets Mm, by 2025. That hurts my heart. GM has been after this for years. Well, look at it this way. I know. It boils down to money. Always does. Always okay, does. Okay, so so basically what you're saying is they're going to keep the Corvette, the, probably the Silverado. Okay, no, 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 no. Or what am I missing? It's, it's even way simpler than that. Okay. They're developing the underlying platforms for which there may be sub-platforms, but in in developing and moving vehicles to these standard platforms, they're global platforms. It means by doing that, they can save billions of dollars in development costs for uh, a specific market platform that may have low volume where they're trying to build a vehicle. They're going to move all their vehicles to one of these four platforms in the next eight to nine years. And then there may be sub uh, modifications from that platform, but that's why they're calling them vehicle sets because it's going to have common um, architecture in terms of the platform, suspension, and things like that, and then they can dial in the rest. That will allow them longer product runs, Probably fewer suppliers, but those suppliers won't get beat up on price like they are now. Okay, so have they defined what those four are? Uh, Very quickly. Uh, They're all uh, vehicle strategy set front, vehicle strategy set uh, rear, vehicle strategy set uh, S for SUV and crossover, and vehicle strategy set for truck. Now, this is light truck. This is mainly body-on-frame vehicles. But by going this way, um, automakers have been trying to, quote, unquote, run common for years. Ford tried it almost 40 years ago yep. with the Escort and the world car yep. that mm-hmm. miserably failed. Yeah. Uh, reason being is that because if they can find the secret sauce that lets them get more production over a longer run, it lowers costs, saves on engineering. It just, it's unbelievable in terms of cost as well as lets them develop new products in a lot less time because they're, if you'll pardon the pun, not reinventing the wheel. True. That's true. So GM is heading this way and moving a lot of their vehicles that you know of, plus vehicles that they're developing on a worldwide scale to these platforms. Right now, uh, they're looking to start this in 2020. So it will be a gradual push as new 
uh, generations of vehicles come out, they'll move them to these particular vehicle sets in order to get longer runs. Now, when you say a longer run, are you talking about time, time between redesign? No. Actually, longer run in terms of number of units built. Okay. I mean, if you are a shock manufacturer building uh, suspension parts, uh, if you're getting the contract for that whole vehicle set run, mm-hmm. which might be uh, a couple of million as opposed to maybe 20, 30, 40, 100,000, uh, yeah, it allows the company to save money and it allows the supplier to uh, actually make money, which is usually where the pressure is. So we'll see. Um, when we come back, finally, a step in the right direction is Congress. Yes, the United States Congress, you know that one, reauthorizes legislation that has to do with careers and technical education. Stay tuned. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. We are Roadworthy Drive. You're tuned in to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. Welcome to the last segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. For this last segment, I want to talk about training. Are you trainable? No. Okay. It's too late for me. Um, The kind of technical training that is desperately needed on factory floors across this country. It's often a dirty little secret of the American economy. While While there may be plenty of good paying jobs available, employers are having a hard time filling them due to a lack of a pool of trained applicants. I can speak on that one from personal experience. Now, I wanted to end this hour by taking a look at something Congress passed and it was signed. That is a step towards dealing with this challenge. Now, we've been critical about Made in America. We've been critical about jobs made in America. Mm -hmm. And I've often been a critic of uh, the lack of apprenticeship training programs, things like this, that used to be the norm, seemingly. Well, but at what point in time in the – I'm going to go back as far as the late 70s. You've gotten to a point now where everybody says you have to go to college. You have to have a degree. Right, yeah. Now the problem is all of the trades, including auto, construction, uh, HVAC, plumbers, that kind of stuff, all are lacking qualified people to get the job done. And see, I say this as someone that has two bachelor's degrees and up to my eyeballs in debt. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not the way anymore. I mean, now you can go to trade because I'm assuming that these are trade school. Well, let's let's talk about this. It is the actual authorization of what they call the Perkins Act. Okay. Uh, it is uh, it it's uh, Bill HR two three five three. It was recently signed by the president. Okay. Uh, it is the first um, overhaul of this act since it was passed in two thousand six. All right. Um, what it does, now it's called the Strengthening Career and Technical Education for the 21st Century Act in the law. Now, the new law provides states with greater flexibility to set their own goals for career and technical education programs without the approval from the U.S. Department of Education, while requiring states to make progress towards those goals. Now, this I got 
And it got my interest up because it comes from SEMA, the Specialty Equipment Market Association, uh, the folks that are basically an organization of just under 7,000 made in the USA mom and pop uh, aftermarket and uh, specialty equipment companies. Mm -hmm. Of particular importance to the aftermarket industry, this bill aligns students with in-demand career fields and encourages career and technical schools to work more closely with employers. Additionally, the new law is focused on improving students' employability skills, work-based learning opportunities, and credentialing so that they are job-ready when entering the workforce. And I found that to be true uh, because I did look into um, a comparison uh, issued by the Congressional Research Service of the Perkins Law when it was passed and the changes that were made uh, in the new law. Okay. So the original act was called the Carl D. Perkins Career and Technical Education Act of 2006. Um, the beautiful part that I like about this, some of the changes, gradually raising the total authorized appropriation levels, reaching a total of $1.21 billion by fiscal year 2023, compared to the actual appropriations now of just a little over $1.12 billion. They're putting their money where their mouth is. That's a billion plus a year, every year through 2023. And that's probably a very good thing at this point. It's always a start. And, I mean, we should do more, but I'll take what we can get. It changes an allocation formula that would require the states to, to receive an allocation of no less than 90% of their previous year allocation so states can budget and plan going forward without worrying about losing all their funding year okay. to year. So there's that. There is also 15% of what they call their basic state grant funds for innovative activities career and technical education activities in rural areas or with areas with higher numbers or concentrations of career and technical education students. And finally, the states get to set their own annual targets on the core indicators of performance uh, without the approval of the Secretary of Education. Okay. I have a question for you. Yes, sir. You at one point told me that one of the area community college here used to have a GM mechanics program. Yes. Or Ford or Dodge. It was it was a program for uh, mechanics, for dealership mechanics, basically. Correct. Now, in that, with the technology changing so much, is this new appropriation going to pay for the new equipment that they're going to need to train these kids? It doesn't kids? get into all of that. Or does it even say how much an individual could get no. toward their education. No, because remember what I said. The states set the tone. So it's going to be different. It could theoretically be different in each state how they choose to approach it. Um, but the, the big thing about this is it aligns the money more in line with the skills that are needed in the employment world today. In that state? In that state, yeah. And the okay. state gets to decide that. And I think that is pretty awesome. One other thing I want to add is they talk about uh, special populations that this is designed to address. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to read what the original law had, and I want to read what the new law adds to it. Okay. Okay. Individu Under the Perkins Act, definition of special populations includes individuals with disabilities, individuals from economically disadvantaged families, foster children, 
individuals preparing for non-traditional fields, single parents, including single pregnant women, this is what it said, Mm -hmm. displaced homemakers, and individuals with limited English proficiency. This is what it adds. Youth that have aged out of the foster care system now are eligible. Okay. Homeless individuals are now eligible specifically in the program. And youth with parents who are active duty members of armed forces now specifically mentioned in the law as a special population that needs attention. Um, I think this is important. Like I said, this has been one of my biggest criticisms. We need, if we're going to prepare for the future, we need to put our money where our mouth is so these people can get the training they need because you don't always have the money to go. Okay. And at what point in time do we need to go talk to corporations and say, guys, if you want trainable people, you're going to have to step up and give us some help in but trying this to is, fund this. But this is the whole point of the law is right. to better but, align uh, these skill sets and these people and guide students towards careers that are needed today, which means the companies have to have input with the state saying, hey, we need people to run CTC machines and whatever. Uh, and adjust the training to address that. So, again, as always, too much topic, too little time. Thanks for listening. Real facts, real opinions, real talk. This has been Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.